And uh, I'm going to have a little bit of introductory material, then we're going to have prayers we get into God's Word, all right? Uh, I do a presentation on Daniel 11. As many of you know, Daniel 11 has kind of been the territory of I don't know. Uh, you could think back if you were ever in an Adventist college or anything like that. You study Daniel 2, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Let's get out of here quick. Glad we're at the end of the semester. <laughs> That's kind of the way it's been, right? Take a, take a look at many of our commentators, carries. It's the same thing. And over the years, people that got into Daniel 11 have often been marginalized and sidelined in the Adventist church. So it was not with a great deal of excitement and thrill when God started impressing me to really dig into it. <laughs> and uh, But I ended up digging into it. And the amazing thing is that not only has it eluded us for a long time, I do believe it's time to understand it. Because this is something that people all over North America and the world are studying into. There are several different viewpoints on Daniel 11. What you're about to be hearing in the next couple of days is one of the more recent viewpoints, but it is rapidly gaining traction in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and outside the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The reason I say that is I do most of my seminars for the public. And uh, so I do Daniel 11 seminars for the public, and that is a lot of fun. And uh, so, but our book, same title, uh, is published by the Review and Herald. And uh, let me just say this. This was an ad that ran in Ministry Magazine. And it's about to run again for another couple of months. That ought to tell you that this is not exactly marginalized this time, Daniel 11. I'm employed by the Idaho Conference of Seventh-day Adventists to present prophecy seminars full-time. And the seminar I'm supposed to be presenting full-time is on Daniel 11. And I've been given freedom to go anywhere in the world. Believe it or not, I do not have to ask my conference for permission to work outside my conference. That's assumed. If they want to know where I am, they go to my website and take a look. Because it will tell them where I'm going to be. <laughs> you can do the same. And uh, the reason they give me that freedom is they put exactly zero money into my budget. Uh, they believe in what we do. But we don't have, they didn't have enough money to support it that way. And so they said, well, Tim, if you're willing to take the risk, we will keep you as an employee because I was pastoring in the conference. And we'll let you go full time as long as you raise enough money to pay all your expenses. And so I'm the only pastor in the Idaho conference that's not paid out of tithe money. I'm just paid out of offerings and evangelism or prophecy seminar fees that I charge all over as I travel. And uh, so it's been a really neat deal because the money comes from all over. They figure the ministry should be going all over, right? So I never knew Idaho was going to be the springboard to take a message all over the world. So anyway, the Review and Herald, let me just pop this next one up, uh, published our book on Daniel 11, Islam and Christianity and Prophecy. It was just reprinted. And uh, so the ABC should have them when they get here. If they forget them, we have a few. And uh, but... This is all about Daniel 11, published by the Review and Herald. We also do a public 10-day seminar, uh, and that's what we do, 13 to 15 of them a year. Uh, between mid-September and mid-May, we get home two days every other week. 
and it's just a, we come home on a Monday, we leave on a Thursday, and every Friday, every other Friday, we're starting a brand new seminar somewhere. And uh, so, and we get secular people, we get occasional Muslims coming in, we get Christians of all stripes coming in, we've had military intelligence, FBI, Homeland Security, uh, State Department, military, uh, they tell me some of those folks come in and say, we have both personal and professional reasons to be here. Uh, the most interesting one was the long discussion I had with a high-ranking military intelligence officer after a seminar. Uh, by the way, how many of our prophecy seminars get those kind of people attending to figure out what's going on? So uh, that's the kind of stuff you're in for in this seminar. And... Uh, so we also do camp meetings and a three-hour, what we often call an Adventist version. And the reason it's an Adventist version is because we condense it so much that if somebody doesn't have a good understanding of prophecy like most Adventists have, it's just blowing right by them. Uh, on our 10-day public seminar, we keep getting accused of giving people a drink with a fire hose. And we're only studying one chapter in detail. Uh, so, and we have a website. Islamandchristianity.org. Now, folks, when you're, if you get excited about what you're going to see here, you, you have a choice. You can buy the public seminar DVDs from the ABC, or you can go to our website and watch it for free. Uh, <laughs> but there is the short version. Uh, there will be a four-hour DVD uh, that is kind of the uh, Adventist version, similar to what we're presenting here, that you can only pretty well get from the ABC uh, because on our website we don't want people to get confused with the short version and we only have the full explanation out there on the website. We get Muslims and people from all over the world on our website. Uh, this morning I noticed I had a guy from Pakistan, uh, another Muslim liking us. We have lots of people liking our website and uh, Many of them are Muslims, even though occasionally they tell me that I'm going to be charcoal for the fires of hell. And, but, hey, they're liking it, and their friends are liking it, and they're connecting, and, and they're getting a message about Jesus Christ. And if they want to say I'm fires, charcoal for the fires of hell in the process, I don't mind as long as they're reading and listening. And this is a very active website. Uh, recently, we were taking a look at it, and there were six people from Saudi Arabia on at that moment. There were about 20 on worldwide at that moment, but there were six of them from Saudi Arabia. If I was to go to Saudi Arabia and share what I'm going to be sharing with you guys in the next couple of days, I wouldn't be coming home. However, it's really fun to be, know that all over the Middle East, every day, we're reaching out to people. Uh, and we're reaching out to more people by internet every day than we do in person. So, well, let's get into Daniel 11, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the awesome opportunity of opening your word. And Lord, right here in this wonderful outdoor setting, I ask that you would send your spirit to lead and guide us. Direct, direct, direct our minds, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When I talk about Daniel 11, I am talking about Daniel 11, verse 2 through 12, 3. Why? 
because the vision starts. Well, I shouldn't say the vision. The vision starts in chapter 10, ends at the end of 12. But the prophecy section of the vision begins in verse 2 of Daniel 11, and it ends with 3 or 4, depending on how you make the cut. Uh, But So we're going to be focusing in particular on the vision of Daniel 11, 2 through 12, 3, although I will be taking a little side trip to look at the times of Daniel 11 and 12. And that will be explaining the 1290 and the 1335, and it's going to make more sense than you've ever heard it make before. Here's the thing. Daniel 11 tells us the what. If you'll just read Daniel 12, verses 5 and 6, it says, how long will these wonders be? What wonders, what you just learned in Daniel 11, what's the time frame for them? And Daniel 12, verses 5 and following, give you the time frames. Don't ever break Daniel 12, 5 and following, away from the vision. Because it's explanation for the vision, for the time aspect. But we'll get to that part later. Uh, Daniel 11, the vision, is chronological or sequential. It starts in Daniel's day, works systematically through time, hits the time of Jesus, goes on through the breakup of the Roman Empire, on up to our time in the coming of Jesus Christ and establishing his kingdom. Friends, here's what's amazing about that. You go to a typical prophecy seminar, and the prophecy seminar presenter is going to bounce all over the place, making up their own outline, right? I used to do the same thing. I'm not trying to criticize that. Except one day... I was doing a prophecy seminar. This is before I went full-time on it. And I was using Daniel 11 as a part of it. But not all of it. And during closing prayer, you would be surprised how many times the Lord is talking to whoever's up front talking to you. Happens all the time. And during closing prayer, as I'm praying, God hits me with this one. What do you think you're doing? Uh, Lord, I'm sharing your word. (laughs) Why are you using your outline and not mine? Oh. All right, Lord. And at that moment, I made the decision, and I switched, and I went full on Daniel 11, and I used his outline. And here's what's amazing about that. When I'm doing a public seminar, you come to an Adventist prophecy seminar, and the Adventist presenter presents it in such a way that it gives kind of one message. You go to some other ones and they give a seven-year tribulation twist to everything. You get it by bouncing around. Here's the neat thing. We don't bounce around. Oh, we're going to bounce a little bit to explain, but we're getting our sequence, our outline, from one chapter of the Bible. And for a whole series of 10 days meetings, or for this meeting during camp meeting, we're going to be working verse by verse through Daniel 11 sequentially and friends as soon as you do that there's no room for a seven-year trip it just doesn't fit anymore in daniel 11 and it's really interesting the way this works by the way this is going to confirm most everything you've ever heard and add to it uh how many of you ever wondered about who's the king of the north and who's the king of the south got another question for you how many of you feel like you're fairly confident that you know who the head of gold is, the chest of silver, you know, Daniel 2. you got a pretty good gr- grasp of Daniel 2. How many of you would say you've got a pretty good grasp of Daniel 11's King of the North all the way through? You know what? 
everybody that raised their hand on Daniel 2 should have been raising their hand on Daniel 11. Because the king of the north and the gold, silver, same thing. It's the same thing. It's not difficult, friends. We're just going to build on what you already know. Daniel does a repeat and enlargement. Daniel 2 is a vision. Daniel 7, it's a repeat and enlargement. Gives you more detail. Daniel 8 repeats, gives more detail. What do you think Daniel 11 is going to do? Repeat more detail. It's the same principle. And so Daniel 11 is very consistent. Daniel all the way through is consistent. And now let me illustrate to you how that works. The key to understanding king of the north, king of the south is found in Jeremiah chapter 1. But that's not Daniel, you'll tell me. No, it's not. Who was Daniel's prophet when he was a kid? Jeremiah. That's the guy that tells him, don't fight against the Babylonians. Cooperate with them. So Daniel doesn't fight. He cooperates, ends up prime minister of Babylon. Does it work? Yeah, pretty well. Uh, There's going to be 70 years of captivity. At the end of 70 years, Daniel starts praying for deliverance. And it happens. Is it worth paying attention to Jeremiah? Definitely. So when Jeremiah tells you who the kings of the north are, and then Daniel goes into detail about it, it's worth keeping those two things in harmony, all right? Here's what Jeremiah says. And you can read the context. It's more than just this. It starts in verse 13. But for behold, I'm calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord. They shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Whoa. Jeremiah is talking about the Babylonian captivity, right? And they're going to be attacked. And everybody understands that Jeremiah's first power is Babylon. But I have a question. Is that singular for families and kingdoms or plural? In other words, there's going to be more than one. By the way, how many thrones did Nebuchadnezzar once set up? His throne, right? Uh, you'd, you'd be pretty well dead if you wanted to set up a throne by him. He was the one and only. This great Babylon that we built? Uh-uh. <laughs> that he says, I built. But after, ba- after Babylon comes Persia, Medes and the Persians, and on down the line, one after another takes over Jerusalem, don't they? Ultimately, you go through the image. Ultimately, a rock cut out without hands comes in. Jesus setting up his kingdom. Where does Jesus set up his king- capital at the end of the thousand years? New Jerusalem, and that's where? On this earth. He splits the Mount of Olives. That's at the gates of old Jerusalem. Now notice, even Jesus, as the last and final power of the sequence, sets his gates up at Jerusalem. It takes us all the way there. Jesus is the true king of the north. The rest are imposters. And we're going to be looking at the imposters, starting with Babylon. So we will start with Babylon. In Daniel 2 and 7, uh, he starts with Babylon. In chapters 8 and 11, he skips Babylon because Babylon had already passed off the scene by the time Daniel writes 8 and 11. I heard somebody a bit ago talk about Babylon. The head of gold, lion's wings, but they're not from the north. They're from the east. Ah, uh-uh. ah. But they attack Jerusalem from the north. You see, Babylon's way off here to the east. This is a desert in between. 
and you don't come across the desert if you want your army to survive. So what do you do? You go up the river valleys and drop down on Jerusalem from the north. So if you're a guard uh, in Judea, which direction are the Babylonians attacking you from? The north. You see, the key for who the king of the north is not whose capital is north. It's which direction are they attacking from. And the king of the north will always attack, in this case, from the north. So let's keep looking. The next power we find listed by name in Daniel 11, verse 2. But now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, here is a really important key to understanding Daniel chapter 11. Persia represents Persia. Greece represents Greece. You're going, "Uh uh-huh. No, that's huge. Because we have all kinds of commentators who try and make what Daniel says in Daniel 11 mean other things. By the end of the chapter, he's going to be talking about Egypt, Edom, Moab, Ammon, Libya, Ethiopia. If in the beginning of the prophecy, Persia means Persia and Greece means Greece, unless you have a very clear indicator in the prophecy to change your techniques or your principles of understanding partway through, you're going to mess things up. And so we're simply going to take it as it reads. How about that? Now, somebody says, but Babylon doesn't mean Babylon in Revelation. It doesn't. But Daniel 11, if you may have noticed, is Daniel, not Revelation. Here's the key. In Daniel, every place name means what it says it does all the way through the book. Once you get the Revelation, there is one place name that means what it says. Patmos. John was a prisoner and was in vision on the Isle of Patmos. Once the vision hits, every place name has a symbolic application. Every one of them. So question, is Daniel 11 in the book of Daniel or Revelation? Pretty simple stuff, right? So you use Daniel's geopolitical means what it says it means in Daniel, and you use Revelation's symbolic because in verse 1 of Daniel, it says it was put, was signified or put in symbolic form. So you just use Revelation's principles and Revelations, Daniel's principles and Daniel, and you won't get confused. You mix them, you bring in confusion. All right, so we have the fourth king, happens to be Xerxes the Great, and he's going to go off and attack Greece. But first, let's take a look at something. Persia. We have the Medes and the Persians, the chest of silver and the bear. Now, they come from way out here east, but they come in and occupy Jerusalem from the north for the same reasons as this is desert. Jeremiah 50, verse 9, if you want to look that up later, you're going to find out that he calls them, the Medes and the Persians, an assembly of great nations from the north. So Jeremiah himself tags Medes and the Persians as the next king of the north. All right? And it's in the same line as all Daniel's prophecies. So it fits. Now, the next key. Xerxes the Great attacks Greece and he fails to win. He's a very rich, powerful ruler. 
But when he gathers all these forces, he attacks, he fails to win, he comes back to Persia. He is not, there are 12 more Persian kings after him. Greece has not attacked the capital of Persia. Not yet. That's not going to fall until the times of Alexander the Great. But the key is, once the current king of the north, in this case Persia, attacks the rising king of the north, in this case Greece, fails to win, you don't worry about the last part of the Persians, the last 12 kings. You totally ignore them, and you jump ahead to the first great king of Greece, which is Alexander the Great. The prophecy has no time for failing superpowers. It only focuses on powerful superpowers. Now that's huge. Because it happens that same way every time throughout the rest of the book of Daniel. Right up to the setting up of God's kingdom. Works the same way. So, two keys so far. It means what it says it means. And the king of the north transitions when the current king of the north attacks the rising king of the north and fails to win. So let's take a look. After Xerxes the Great attacks, he loses to Greece. Then verses 2 through 4 are about Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Everybody, at least almost everybody, assumes and believes, and I agree, this is talking about Alexander the Great. It's exactly parallel to Daniel chapter 7 and 8. No question here. We have Alexander the Great. And when he's arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven. Let's see. In Daniel 7, four heads on the leopard. Daniel 8, four horns. Four winds in Daniel 11. It's got a four-way division. But not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. Hmm. All right. And for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. Alexander's heir that is born really late in the process does not get any of this. The kingdom breaks up in the multiple pieces, eventually settling in the four primary parts. Hey, that actually matches Bible prophecy, doesn't it? And uh, so we have Greece. Which way does Greece occupy Jerusalem from? They come in from the north. I'm glad you can at least see the outlines in the map. <laughs> You're going to have to use some imagination, which is not a bad thing. It might make it sink deeper into your heads. And uh, so they come in from the north. And so you, you can see kind of this reddish territory. That's the Greek Empire. And uh, so they come in from the north. And then in verses 5 through 19, we have the broken Greek empire with a king of the north and a king of the... Now, this is the first time we have a king of the south in the prophecy. There are only two sections of history that there are a king of the south involved. One is during the divided Greek empire and the other is the divided Roman empire. So when an empire divides, you have a north and a south. Now, the prophecy, it tells us in Daniel 12, verse 4, will be understood at the time of the end. If it's not going to be understood till the time of the end, 
why does he take verses 5 through 19 to explain stuff that's way back in history by the time we get to the time of the end? Simple explanation. It gives us practice. We can take a look at whatever we're using for keys or principles to understand rules of interpretation, to understand Daniel's prophecy, and we can compare it to the history of this time period. If your rules of interpretation don't work here, they won't work at the end. This is kind of your cheat sheet, your practice set of problems for the end time. Now, I am not going to go through the detail, and there's a really simple reason why. If you can think back to when you were in high school, how many of you had history as your favorite class in high school? Take a quick look around. Keep your hands up there for a moment. Is this a large majority? I would like more than them back tomorrow morning. <laughs> okay. By the way, we're dealing with the boring part right now. But I don't want to bore you too much. So in your hands is an outline that actually gives you the prophecy in the left-hand column and its fulfillment in the right-hand column. All right? And for those of you who want to get into the history, it's there. You can take any world history book. You can go online. You're going to find out, yep, we're right on track with this stuff. Okay? The prophecy following these rules of interpretation matches exactly to the history. That gives us a way of knowing. Because what's important is the real focal point of the chapter is what happens in the divided Roman Empire. And it follows the same pattern as the divided Greek Empire. And so you can take a look at that. But here's the real issue going on. You have a king of the north, the Seleucids up north of Jerusalem, the Ptolemies, both Greek empires, by the way, getting a centuries-long conflict back and forth. Who gets caught in the middle? Okay, think about your neighborhood at home. If your neighbor to the south set up a machine gun pointing out a window, and your neighbor to the south sent a machine gun pointed out their window, and your house is in the middle, and they start shooting at each other, is this going to be something that you really enjoy? Your house starts getting riddled with holes. Family members start getting killed. That is exactly what's happening to Israel and Judea and Jerusalem during this time period. It was not fun to get caught in the middle. God's people get caught where? Are you God's people? Have you ever felt like you've been caught in the middle? From this point on, God's people are caught in the middle. And if you follow God, you too are caught in the middle. And you will be amazed by the end of the prophecy at just how caught in the middle you are. But good news. Daniel 12 is all about how God delivers his people caught in the middle. The people on both sides go into self-destruct mode. They go down. The people in the middle survive. Where do you want to be? right in the middle, even though it's a rather hot spot for a long time. So this is not just about history, friends. This is about our world today. Then, verse 17 to 19. 
we find Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great. This just kind of tickles me. Uh, we have Xerxes the Great loses to Greece. Antiochus the Great loses to Rome. You put great on a guy's name and he goes down. <sighs> oh, uh, we have a brochure uh, that we use in a public seminar. My wife has a couple of them in the back that you can take a look at what we send out. Uh, she's holding one up right now. It doesn't use beast. It uses people's pictures that represent the powers talked about in the prophecy. Instead of talking symbolically, we're doing Daniel 11, which says what it means, so we figure we ought to use what it means on the cover, right? And so we have a, relig a Christian religious leader and a Christian spiritual leader. We have a Muslim religious leader and a Muslim uh, political leader. The first political one we used was Osama bin Laden, but he didn't last very long. So then we put in his place um, Ahmadinejad. He got voted out of office. I think he gets replaced, what is it, tomorrow or something like that? Uh, so two meetings back, I said, hey, look, Ahmadinejad's on his way out. Let's put Morsi on the picture. He's a political figure that people recognize. We printed Morsi on for one series of meetings and goodbye, Morsi. And my printer said, sent me an email. He says, which Muslim leader do you want to jinx next? <laughs> I am still trying to decide which one I want to put on the cover next. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Antiochus the Great, he decides that he wants to retake the whole Greek empire as in, uh, as the area ruled by Alexander the Great. But you have it broken into four major pieces, right? But the two primary pieces are the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. But they've been really fighting with each other. If he could get both militaries without fighting a war to take over and just unite the militaries, he could have a powerful military and nobody could stop him. So he goes into a plan. His daughter, Cleopatra, and you're thinking Mark Anthony, Cleopatra? No, this is Cleopatra 1. You're thinking number 7. Okay? Number 1. Was not that many years earlier, by the way. Probably about 100 years earlier. And uh, so Cleopatra 1, his daughter, he says, Honey, I want, I'm going to send you down to Egypt to marry the prince of the Ptolemies. He will become king, you'll become queen, and if you play things right, he won't live a long time. People died of stomach aches on a regular basis back then after eating something that somebody doctored. <laughs> and uh, he won't live a long time. You'll be the ruler of Egypt and we will unite our kingdoms without a war and with our united military, I will be able to conquer the world. She pulls it off. And when he tries to unite, she says, not so fast, Dad. We can unite if you want to serve me. She's just like him. <laughs> wonder where she learned that from. And uh, so she says, you can, we can unite. He says, no. And so instead of attacking his daughter, Rome is starting to gain strength off to his west. And so he gathers his vast military abilities and he heads towards the western coastlands. 
Now, this guy really should have read Daniel 11 first. Because number one, it says his daughter would not stand with him. She didn't. Number two, it says he's then going to head to the western coastlands. So he does. But he should have read what's going to happen when he did that. There would be a commander that would come and meet him and put an end to his insolence. Rome sends a general over the medium with an army. Guess who wins? The Roman general wins. He's defeated. He's not killed. He's got to go back home to raise money to pay tribute to Rome. That's what he's got to pay basically a, a hostage fee to be allowed to be free. He's got to pay a tribute to Rome. He goes back home, and it says, the prophecy says, when he returns home, he will die. Smart guy would have read the prophecy and gone somewhere else. But he heads home, and he raids a pagan temple so that he can take all their valuable things and give them to Rome to pay the tribute. The people in the temple get really mad, and they kill him. Let's see, his daughter doesn't stand with him. He goes to the western coastlands. He's defeated. He goes home, and he dies. Pretty good indicator we've got the right match going here. Let's see. If he gets in a fight with Rome, and Rome wins, who's the new king of the north? Rome is. Let's see if verse 20 talks about Rome. Oh, let me add this in here. Almost everybody decides that we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes from here on. Because they don't know the principle that as soon as you attack the next power and lose, you switch. So they try and make this continue to talk about the next Seleucid king, which is Antiochus Epiphanes. And almost everybody goes that route, and it breaks the link to Daniel 7 and 8, which is the little horn comes next in the breakup of Rome. So let's take a look at what this actually says. Verses 20 to 22, it's the Roman phase, and during this phase, the prince of the covenant shows up. Well, when does Jesus show up? During the time of Rome, right? So, yeah, you, right off the bat, when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, yep, this is, this is working. So we have the legs of iron in Daniel 2. We have the beast with iron teeth and iron, you know, and he's got the ten horns and all that. Rome. Rome comes in from the north. Hey, by the way, I need somebody to give me a five-minute warning before time's up because I'm just going to cut this thing off and we'll pick it up tomorrow, okay? So you're going to give me a five-minute warning because I'm not watching the clock. Okay. (laughs) And so Rome comes in from the north and they take Jerusalem. By the way, a few people have said, no, no, Rome took Egypt first. They came from the south. Rome did take Egypt first, but they came from the north. Here's why. A guy by the name of Pompey comes down and he takes Egypt. Heard of Pompey, right? He goes back to Rome, gets a new assignment after he takes Egypt. And that is to take control of this area over here. There's some civil disturbances going on over there. He heads over here. Now, which direction from Jerusalem is this? Directly north of it, isn't it? While he's there, there's a a fight breaks out between a couple of different leaders, Jewish leaders, over who's the real leader in Jerusalem. One of them says, Pompey, come and settle this and help me win. Pompey says, I don't need a second invitation to come into a new territory. Take it for Rome. He comes in. He ends up attacking the Temple Mount from the north side to get rid of the opposition. Catch that. He even took the temple from the north side. 
It's pretty interesting that how these Bible prophecies are fulfilled. And so Rome comes in from the north. And let's take a look at what it actually says in verses 20 to 22. There shall arise in, in his place, this is right after what I believe was Antiochus the Great, there shall be one who arises in his place, one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Okay, I believe we're talking about Augustus. When we came to the Greek Empire, the first great Greek ruler was Alexander the Great. When you come to Rome, you've got to take a pick, Julius or Augustus. Most historians say Augustus is the first true Caesar. But it, I'm not necessarily going to go with the historians. But I take a look at this comment. But he would be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. In other words, this guy's going to die, but not in anger or battle. Julius. I mean, if you were Julius and you're on the steps of the Senate and your friends decide to turn you into a pincushion for their knives, you're assassinated on the steps of the Senate by your friends. You remember the line, you too, Brutus? Ah, uh, would you get the sneaking idea that somebody was angry? It says this guy would not die in anger or in battle. Augustus Caesar dies apparently of natural causes and he does not die in battle. So it can't be Julius, but Augustus fits. Now, is Augustus known as a taxer? Oh, why was it that Matthew and Zacchaeus and stuff were not well loved by their fellow Israelites? Tax collectors for Rome. Now, let's go back to Augustus, Luke 2, 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. King James simply says taxed. Simple thing. If the... Uh, Government is collecting information. They almost always use it to do what? Has that changed much? <laughs> you know, they want your employers to send in all kinds of information. They want to know where you live, what kind of house you live in. Why do they want to know all that stuff? They want to know where the money is, right? By the way, Cyprus. I just read another email account. Uh, uh, I think it's 48% of the bank holdings, the bank accounts, were nationalized to pay the debt. You know, your banks have to keep po the government posted about who's got what money in there all the time, right? And if the government wants it, they take it. Yeah. That's not years ago. That's in the last couple of months that that process went down in Cyprus to keep the government fluid when they couldn't pay their debts. <laughs> Yeah, you can think of that closer to home if you want. But so whenever the government's after information, it's to collect money, and that's been that way for a long, long time. And so this matches Augustus. And then it says, And in his place, in the place of this one who would die but not in anger or in battle, in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And with the force of the flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. Now, the Israelite people were pretty determined that they would not be broken by the Romans. We had zealots and all kinds of things, right? They might be occupied, but they were still free men. They had their own Sanhedrin. They were slaves of no one. They followed God, right? They told Jesus that, didn't they? 
The next king or ruler, Caesar, after Augustus, was a guy by the name of Tiberius. Tiberius was different than most other Caesars. Number one, almost every Caesar earns his stripe or his rights to be Caesar through warfare, civil war. You've got to take on all the other contenders and the last guy standing is Caesar. He's got the strongest military might. Rome followed strength. Tiberius does not fight a civil war to become Caesar. He does it through court intrigue. He's a sneaky, slimy guy. He sees a lady with political clout. He marries her. She's got the right connections. A little while later, she becomes a little bit of a liability and he sees another lady that has better political clout. What do you do if you're all into court intrigue? You divorce wife number one and marry wife number two. We even have politicians that have done that in recent times. By the way, when people realize what they're doing, does their popularity go up or down? Respect, at least, goes down, doesn't it? But after a while, he sees another lady with better political clout. So he divorces number two and marries number one all over again because she'd changed in her standing. Oh, boy. This is the guy that becomes Caesar after Augustus. And during his time period, it says, the people would be broken and so would the prince of the covenant. And in a flood of emotion during the trial of Jesus, the leaders of Israel say, we have no king but... And then Jesus, the prince of the covenant, is broken. All in order as Daniel 11 lays it out. Daniel 11 doesn't miss, just as it's written. And it's really amazing. Now, as I go through Daniel 11, I'm going to take some slight detours. Here's what I tell people in a 10-day series. Daniel 11 is a series of very cryptic statements. They're very short. But we have Daniel 2, 7, 8, 9, we have Revelation and others. It's like a filing system. Daniel 11 puts it in order. By the way, Revelation does not put it in order for you. It gives you glimpses, but it's not in sequential order. It gives you information. But you need something to put it in sequential order. Daniel 11 says what it means, and it's in sequential order. So now all we have to do is look at the rest of Scripture and see what applies to that little spot. What do we have about when Jesus is broken? Daniel 9, the 70 weeks, are all about that point in history. And so we can look at that and expand and fill up the file of our understanding for that point. We find that in Daniel chapter 9, the 70 weeks. Uh, And by the way, this is what Martin Luther taught. This is what the Reformers taught. It's not taught by everybody in today's world. But friends, this is what was taught in the early church and it's what was taught in the Reformation. Don't be bashful about teaching it today. Starting in, from the decree to rebuild, rebuild Jerusalem in 457 B.C., you would have 69 of the 70 weeks, 483 years, bringing you the 27 A.D., which was the time Jesus was baptized. It wasn't his birth. It says, to the anointing of the Most Holy. Jesus was anointed at the, his baptism. He came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and he goes out from there saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he proclaims the gospel message, Right? His ministry begins from that baptism. 27 A.D. 
the baptism. Three and a half Passover cycles later, 31 AD, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to die. How does he know it? He knows Daniel 11 and Daniel 9. He's going to be broken. He's going to be broken in the midst of the week. He has a three and a half year ministry. He will die. And he walks in there. Oh, does Jesus know this? He tells Peter. Peter says, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times. If I forgive him, my brother seven times, can I deck him on number eight? I mean, that's Peter's characteristic, right? And Jesus says, no, I tell you 70 times seven. Why does he pick that kind of a number? 490. This is the time prophecy about Jesus. Earlier in his ministry, he goes in to raise Lazarus from the dead. And they say, but if you go there, they're going to kill you. And he says, my time has not yet come. When they're threatening to kill Jesus, he says, my time has not yet come. And he goes right into Jerusalem. Later, he says, I'm going to die. They're coming towards Jerusalem. Everybody's proclaiming him king. And he says, no, I'm going to die. Jesus isn't going by what's happening, current events on the street. He's going by the prophecy. Friends, we need to start paying more attention to the prophecy than current events. And uh, so Jesus dies on the cross in the midst of the week. And the prophecy said it was to do away with sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. Did he not do that at the cross? Definitely does. And then the gospel goes to the Gentile world in 34 AD. By the way, after that point, anyone accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is an Israelite. They're added to Israel. Uh, Point blank in Ephesians 2, it says that you are a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel if you accept Jesus Christ. And so now the Gospels are added into Israel. Uh, The Gentiles are added in, sorry. Got a picture of Jesus kind of, sort of, on the screen. Here's my point that I want to make with this picture. Daniel 11 is really focusing on Jesus Christ. Verse 22 is where Jesus is broken. There are 45 verses in Daniel 11 in the conflict stage. The rescue stage is 12, 1 and following when Jesus rescues his people. But in the conflict, there are 45 verses. Jesus dies in verse 22. Where about is that out of 45? Right in the middle. Friends, God's people get caught in the middle, but so does Jesus. He gets caught in the middle for us. Isn't that neat? Here's what you need to know. You could know everything there is to know about Bible prophecy, and if you don't know Jesus, you've blown it. Because if you know all about Bible prophecy, even if you knew the day of his return, which he says you're not going to know, even if you could go that far, and you didn't know Jesus, when Jesus is coming, are you going to be happy or sad if you don't know him? Very sad. You're going to call for the rocks and mountains to fall on you. But if you don't know much at all about Bible prophecy, but you love Jesus and he's forgiven you, and here comes Jesus, you're going to be excited. You're going to be praising the Lord. So which is more important, knowing prophecy or knowing Jesus? Friends, there is no question knowing Jesus is number one. It's about Jesus. However, the best way of doing it is to know Jesus, one, 
and know Bible prophecy too so that you don't have to get deceived by anything, right? And so you can know where you stand. Oh, it is so thrilling to know that Jesus is coming. And by the time you get through with this seminar, you're going to have a new understanding of how close we could be to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now we have people, uh, there, one lady was priceless. She walked up to me t- towards the end of a seminar, uh, one of our 10-day seminars, and she said, Pastor, I slept all night last night. I said, oh, that's nice. She said, no, I slept all night last night. I said, I'm thinking this is supposed to be important. Why is this important? I'm, you know, just asking her. She says, I haven't slept all night for years. She says, I've been living in fear. But now that I understand the prophecy and I'm trusting Jesus with what's coming, I'm not afraid anymore. Friends, if you're trusting Jesus, one, and then understanding prophecy, prophecy will be encouraging it won't be scary. Because as you see the world coming apart, so they're going, oh, the world's falling apart. It's Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Big difference in the attitude. You've got to trust Jesus or prophecy is a scary thing. By the way, don't raise your hands on this one. Can, if somebody was to walk up to you and ask how to be a, I'm a Christian, could you tell them how to be a Christian? If you cannot, if you are not ready at the drop of a hat to tell somebody how to become a Christian, I'm going to make a challenging statement to you. You may not, and you probably aren't really a Christian. Mm-hmm. Because if you really are a Christian, you could tell somebody how to be one. If you can't tell somebody how to be one, how do you know you're one? Just a thought. If that's a challenging statement for you, I invite you to make sure you go to our website or talk to me privately. I'll take care of that too. Or take a look in our book. There's a gospel presentation in all those places. And it will show you how to give a gospel presentation. And you memorize it and you put it into your mind and you make sure you've accepted Jesus Christ yourself. How do I, why do I have strong feelings on that? I was raised in a Christian home. And I thought I was a Christian until somebody asked me if I could tell somebody else how to become a Christian. And I wasn't quite so sure, so I took notes on how to explain it to somebody else. And I went home and I studied those notes during the next week. And before that week was over, I'd invited, I was able to lead somebody else to Jesus Christ. It was me. I've been addicted to it ever since. Friends, when you know Jesus, it takes away the fear. In the afternoon, I'm going to do a series, uh, Surviving and Thriving in Troubled Times. There are things I've been through in life that I would not even want to attempt without Jesus Christ. I wouldn't want to attempt any day without Jesus Christ. But I've had a 21-year-old daughter die in my arms. I've had all kinds of stuff happen. And it's all about Jesus that gets you through it. Whatever the troubles are. And so, by the way, the afternoon seminar is totally different than this morning one. This one is taking Daniel 11. We're going to work through it. The afternoon is still based on Daniel without really quoting much of Daniel at all. Here's why. In Daniel, you have all these prophecies, right? But interlaced between the prophecies are... Stories. The prophecies tell you the what, 
the stories tell you the how. And so in the afternoon, I'm going to tell you stories that tell you the how. All right? By the way, what did Jesus do to tell people how to live? I figured if he can do it, I can. He's, he's, he's my hero. Daniel 11, 23 to 24. Uh, at this point, Rome attacks Jesus on the cross, right? Who won that conflict? Well, at the cross, it looks like Rome wins. And they give 100 so- Roman soldiers an easy, we- really easy weekend duty. Keep a dead man dead for three days. A hundred soldiers to keep a dead man dead. Could you just picture what they're going to be saying to each other? Oh, if he gets up, which one of us stabs him and puts him back down? This is insanity. But hey, if they want to pay us to sit here in a cemetery and keep a dead man dead for three days, okay. Before the weekend's over. They're coming to the priest and the pilot. (laughs) What's wrong? He's not dead. What do you mean he's not dead? You couldn't keep him dead? Uh, we were standing guard. And there was this flash of light, this angel thing or whatever it is, shows up, the stone just poof, flies away. We fall over like we're dead men, only it's worse. It was like a bad dream. We could see what was happening, but we couldn't move a muscle. You ever had one of those kind of dreams? I've had a couple of those. That's not fun to have those kind of dreams. But that's what they're having in real life. And they're laying there. They can't move a muscle, scared stiff. Mm-hmm, that matches them. And Jesus walks out. Well, where did Jesus go? We don't know. We couldn't move a muscle. He just walked past us. You sure he's not? In the, yeah, we looked. We've got a problem. At this point, who's won the conflict, Jesus or Rome? Isn't that good news? Jesus wins. Always does. The current king of the north has attacked a rising king of the north and failed to win. We should have a change happening here, and we do. From this point on, we have Christianity coming in. It starts out with a small number and peaceable, but it comes in with deceit in a little bit. Now, when Christianity becomes powerful, it is when Constantine becomes a Christian. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders don't need the hide to avoid becoming martyrs. They can now step out in the open and they have political power. What does power do? An absolute power absolutely corrupts. So the prophecy says, when a league is made with him, he will act deceitfully. At the time the papacy comes out in the open, Christianity, what happens? Constantine moves off to Constantinople. It leaves the Pope in charge in Rome. And we have a document that shows up called the Donation of Constantine. Google the Donation of Constantine and what do you find out? It is a forgery. Let's see. If you use a forgery to prove your power, are you not coming in with... So when the league is made with them, the the rising king of the north becomes deceitful. Christianity starts small and good and it becomes deceitful when a league is made. Matching the history right on. And so as we head towards the breakup of Rome in Daniel 7 and 8, we have the horns come out and then a little horn. In Daniel 11, as we head to the breakup of Rome, we have the king of the north 
emerge with deceit. We now have Christian Europe, papal Christianity, or the Holy Roman Empire. Now, be really, really careful at this point that you're not religious bigots. Because there are people that have understood this who think that all Roman Catholics are lost. They are not. I am expecting more formerly Roman Catholic people in heaven than from any other denomination. Why? Well, they've been around for centuries, millennia. They have been around in larger numbers than any other, even if they had a smaller percentage of true converted Christians within their number, they're still going to have more people in heaven than anybody else. All right? But did you notice I said former Catholics? There's going to be former Catholics, former Baptists, former Adventists, former Pentecostal, former all kinds of stuff. Because in heaven, we're simply going to be God's kids. Isn't that going to be awesome stuff? Or it's not in separate neighborhoods. I'm looking forward to all kinds of those people. You know, it would just thrill my heart if I ended up with somebody like an Adolf Hitler as my neighbor. Odds are really low. But we're not exactly positive what all went on in the last moments of that guy's life. Wouldn't it be awesome if he actually trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior in his last moments and realized he'd made a huge mess of things in the world? And if he really meant it, Jesus would forgive him, right? And if he was forgiven, I wouldn't be afraid to live next door to him, even with a name like Rosenberg. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> no matter who your worst enemy is, if you trust Jesus Christ and they trust Jesus Christ, you'd be happy neighbors in heaven. Jesus changes everything. Jesus is a really neat guy, isn't he? Okay, so let's keep going. Now we have the divided Roman Empire with the little horn, papal-led Christianity. The king of the north at this stage is the same as the little horn. It's the same as the beast of Revelation. It's the same as the man of sin. It's really the same as Babylon in Revelation. Oh, here's an interesting thing. Who is the first king of the north from Jeremiah's line of kings in Daniel 2 and 7? Babylon. When you read Babylon in Revelation, it's just throwing you back to the king of the north. And who's the king of the north in Daniel during that time? It's the papacy at the end time. So just a really interesting tie in Revelation and Daniel there. And so we have these ten horns and they break up. And papal-led Christianity... Oh, do they ever attack Jerusalem from the north? Anybody ever heard of the Crusades? Wave after wave of crusades was the papacy attacking Jerusalem from the north. By the way, who's the antagonist from the south at this point? It's going to be Islam. From this time on, oh, here's another key that you really ought to know. This is the most radical thing I'm going to say in the whole time I'm with you. At least according to theologians it is. From this time on, the king of the north is both geopolitical and spiritual as are Israel and the king of the south. You're saying, what's so radical about that? In the Adventist church, years ago, there was a guy by the name of Uriah Smith who said it was all literal. 
and he focused on Turkey. He didn't notice it was just which direction they were coming from. He was thinking who had a, their capital just north. And he thought, and based on what he thought, uh, interworld War I was when Turkey was going to try and control the world and take over, and it didn't happen, did it? Well, then there was a guy by the name of Lewis Weir who says, well, uh, this whole all Bible prophecy principles are spiritual from the time of Jesus' death and following. There's nothing literal about them. And Hans Larendell and others taught that. And if any of you went to the seminary in the last 40, 50, 40 year or so years, probably, uh, that's what you were taught. Well, I have a question. When Jesus talked about the fall of Jerusalem, was that only spiritual? 70 AD, is that before or after Jesus' death? Whoops. Not everything went spiritual after the death of Jesus, did it? As a matter of fact, when you're talking about Jerusalem, there was a literal fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but it prefigures the fall of Christianity, or what's going to happen to God's people at the end of time. In Daniel 11, whatever happened to Jerusalem is literal, but it also indicates what's going to happen to all those who are following Jesus Christ. It's exactly the same as Jesus' way of interpreting Jerusalem in Matthew 24. It is both geopolitical and spiritual. And if you take a close look at verses 23 and following in Daniel 11, the king of the north will attack real armies and will have real war, control real geopolitical areas, but he also attacks the covenant and the people of God. Real political armies is geopolitical, literal stuff. Attacking the covenant is spiritual. So the context says, just like Jesus in Matthew 24, it is geopolitical, literal, and it's spiritual. So if you go by the context, this is n not too difficult. And so I get attacked from people that still like Uriah Smith. And by the way, he had the best books out there. No question, hands down, he had the best prophecy books out there for a long, long time. But we have a huge advantage. We're living over 100 years later. We've seen a whole bunch of stuff unfold since then. I'm not criticizing him. He didn't have what we have. But then we have these spiritual guys and some of us come along, not just me now, and saying, hey, the context is both geopolitical and spiritual. Let's see if it both fit. And they go, but, but, but. Why not? That's what Jesus did in Matthew 24. So let's try it out. Geopolitical and spiritual. So from this time, the king of the north is papal-led Christianity. It is literal, political. Does the papacy have political power? Oh, yes. Does it have spiritual power? Yes. Islam arises at the same time in the 6th century to the south. Once the papacy has full power, Islam comes up at the same time. Interesting timing. Ever heard of Sharia law? Sharia law is a combination of the political and the king of the north, king of the south. They're an awful lot alike. And God's people get caught between between them, both geopolitically and spiritually. Take a look at a map. We have Islam coming from Mecca and Medina. They come up and take Jerusalem and they take in North Africa and all the way up into Spain. That's Arab Islam. Arab Islam begins to weaken and the Crusades come storming in from the north. Jerusalem is caught where? Remember in the Greek Empire, Jerusalem was where? Between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. 
Where has Jerusalem been between the Muslims and the Christians? Same thing, just like the Greek split. Remember I told you the Greek split is a model of what's going to happen in the end time? Boy, it's been happening. What city more than any other has been caught in the middle between Islam and Christianity? Anybody ever visited Jerusalem? (laughs) Is it a city caught in the middle? Yes, very definitely. Um, And so, yep, you still have it. Now, what's the uh, day of worship for Israel? You got that one pretty easy, right? The Sabbath. What's the day of worship for the king of the north? Papacy Sunday. What's the day of worship for the king of the south? Where are God's people caught? Everywhere in the world, you are caught in the middle, both geopolitically or spiritually. Isn't that interesting? By the way, the reason the king of the north changed the day to Sunday is they didn't want to be called Jews after the Jewish-Roman wars. The reason Muhammad chose Friday was two points. One, he didn't want to be called Jewish. The other was, there were already Christians and Jews in the market. And so the Jews didn't show up on Sabbath, the Christians didn't show up Sabbath or Sunday because Christians were worshiping on both days at the time. And so he figured, hey, if I want to get, talk to people in the market, he started preaching on Friday in the market when they were all there in the market. And it set up a tradition. By the way, watch what happens in the Islamic world on Friday. They go to the mosque, the religious leader hype them up. You get your most violent demonstrations on Friday evening and Saturday. Typically. Not always, but that's typically the way it goes. And uh, so, yep, God's people are caught in the middle. Jerusalem is caught, so are God's people of faith everywhere in the world. Now you take a look. Oh, man, you can't see this one. Let me back up to this for a moment. This dark, the red area around here, the Roman Empire. Friends, if you just take the Roman Empire, draw a line through it, north and south, the Christians get the north side, the Muslims get the... Is that hard to do? We've been sweating it out. Who's the king of the north? Who's the king of the south? When all we have to do is look at a map, draw the line with Jerusalem in the middle, and it's really simple. It was always Jerusalem in the middle the whole way through the prophecy, so why wouldn't it be now? You see, what I'm telling you is if you let the prophecy speak for itself and don't change the rules partway through, this really is simple. Five minutes. Okay, good deal. Thank you for doing that. So if we take a look at the world today, and it's hard to see, but here's Jerusalem. Here's the Islamic world. That's predominantly south. That's today's world. And here's the Christian, so-called Christian European nations, and they're linked to the United States, both in culture and militarily through NATO. They're the Christian powers. Are they still north or south? And the Muslim world is still predominantly to the south. Wow. 14 centuries of conflict later, we still have north versus south. And uh, then we have... Oh, I'm going to say one other thing here really quickly, and I will pick it up at this slide next time. People are always asking me, is the God of Christianity and the God of Islam the same? And they want me to say no. But Jesus tells me, by your fruits you shall know them, right? And so when I look at the history, and I look at their fruits, I ask, which side acted like Jesus and loved their enemies during the Crusades or during the Ottomans or whatever? The answer to that is neither. 
And so I come to this very simple conclusion. The majority of Christians and the majority of Muslims are serving the same false God of force, fear, and anger. Do it our way or else. A minority of Christians, you might call them a remnant. A minority of Christians have found the true God of love, truth, peace, and forgiveness. A minority of Muslims are in search of the true God of love, truth, peace, and forgiveness. So a majority of Christians and a majority of Muslims have the same false God, and a minority of Christians and a minority of Muslims have found or in search of the same true God. And I can back that one with historical fact. And multiple other ways. Let me throw out this challenge for you as I close. If you hate Muslims, you are likely to follow the false king of the north in the end time. Because Jesus said to love those who hate you, to love your enemies, to do good to them. And the challenge is in a world that is dividing ever more between radical Islam and Christianity. The challenge is to love. By the way, if the Christian world realized how bad it already was, it would be way worse. At this moment, every five minutes, a Christian is dying for their faith. And a majority of those are killed by Muslims. But every five minutes, another Christian dies for being a Christian. And there are multiple sources to prove that. That's the world that we live in. But friends, there have been millions of Christians I mean, millions of people who were killed by people claiming to be Christians in the name of God, too. It goes both ways. So let's close with a word of prayer. And we probably are right about closing time, right? Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your love for us. And help us to learn to be loving and kind to others as you are to us. Open our minds to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, from here.